Lord, even better and more rich and more delicate, or, yeah, more of a delicacy than uh, fatty meat and sweet red wine is your word. It is more precious to us than life. It is the words of life, and by it we come to know you, the giver of life. And we, we give you praise for that. And I thank you so much for an opportunity to come together as a body and brothers and sisters and spend an hour looking at your word. And I pray that, um, as usual, this would be more than just an exercise of the mind, that our hearts would delight in what we read and rejoice in your love for us and just be humbled by your grace and inspired to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and put into practice his way of life. Um, I, I pray that you would engage our minds and that we would be stretched and challenged and that we would grow in our maturity and understanding of your word, but that also that we would come to simply delight in you more and see that there is nothing uh, more precious to a man than to uh, see God revealed in your word. And so we give you thanks and praise and ask that you would guide our time through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, I love Paul's, like, long parenthetical, right? Because now verse 12, remember. So he started verse 11. Therefore, remember. And then there's this long, okay, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, love that phrase as well, but now, or but God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Man, there's a lot here. Um, let's just rejoice in a couple of these things before we kind of pull it apart at the joints. Um, verse 14, or let's actually go 13, right? In Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um, God has, you know, I, I guess this, this uh, language makes me think of, you know, a parent who scoops up their little child in their arms and holds them close, right? Because of our sin, we were alienated from God. We were far from him. And yet in Christ, God came and embraced us and brought us near. Verse 14, he's our peace. 
and he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. That's what we're talking about. Is that, does Paul have in mind a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile or between man and God? Maybe some of both. Probably contextually it's Jew and Gentile, but um, certainly we could say there's a dividing wall of hostility between us and God, and Jesus tore that down. And he created a new man in verse 15. That, that's what we are as believers, a new creation, a new person, no longer defined by sin and failure and shame, um, but now defined by Christ's righteousness and God's love and acceptance. And um, you know, verse 16, he's reconciled us to God. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That's an interesting uh, phrase as well that we'll have to talk about in more detail. What is unique about the peace of Christ? Like, what kind of peace does Paul have in mind here? Surpasses understanding. A peace that surpasses understanding. That's awesome. That's a good definition. That's a biblical definition, right? Is that Philippians 4? I'm pretty sure it's Philippians 4. Uh, yeah, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, what about what Jesus says? Is it, is it in uh, John 15 where Jesus says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives it do I give it? Um, so the peace that Jesus brings is different than the peace of the world? <coughs> in what way? It lasts. Okay, it's a lasting peace. One of the things I like to point out about this kind of peace is that it's not circumstantial, right? The world thinks of peace as, you know, if, if the conflict between Russia and Ukraine ends, there's no conflict, the circumstances change, and they're no longer at each other's throats, then there's what? Peace. But the peace that Jesus is talking about is you still have a cruddy boss. You still have a difficult, you know, uh, financial situation. You're still in that health problem, whatever. All of the circumstances that around you that are bad are still there, and yet you have peace, right? Rest, um, hope, joy, contentment. There's no fear or anxiety. Um, and ultimately, that's because you have peace with who? God, right? God, you're no longer his enemy. Um, we're going to look at this, uh, but go back to chapter 2, verse 3. Paul there describes us as we are by nature children of wrath, right? So what's really amazing is like if the conflict between Ukraine and Russia were to end, Lots of people would sigh and be like, okay, we just avoided World War III, no more nuclear winter on the horizon. And yet, should they feel any peace in their hearts at all? No. If they're not believers, no. Because they are children of wrath. Far more fearsome and terrible than even nuclear war is to be on the wrong side of the heart of God. All right. So... Man, there's a lot here to talk about. But let's begin by exploring this interesting phrase, Gentiles in the flesh, okay? Isn't the phrase Gentiles in the flesh a little redundant? Uh, why, did, why couldn't Paul just say Gentiles? Well, because they're 
is currently now the Gentiles are reconciled with God. So uh, the Jews, I mean, a Gentile is no longer the one that is uh, that, that is separated from God, and uh, that we have to see as the the sinner. We are all sinners. So, um, sorry. Yes. Yeah, so I like the way that you're going. I think I'm going to go that way. So you'll have to hold that thought and see if that's where where we end up. Any other thoughts? Verse 11. Yeah, so I think the big thing here is that he's going to go into this discussion about circumcision, right? So he's talking about Gentiles and particularly this sign of either belonging to the people of God or not belonging to the people of God, particularly the flesh, right? And verse at the end of verse 11, he says what is called the circumcision, circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, okay? So Paul, I think, is doing something really interesting here that it's going to take us a couple of minutes to unpack, and we actually have to go back to verses 1 through 3. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So real, real quick, before we do this, who is the predominant audience for the book of Ephesus? Who is predominantly present in the church in Ephesus? Gentiles, okay? Uh, that doesn't mean there weren't Jews, but it's predominantly Gentiles, okay? So, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... Which, which uh, word does he use here? Among whom you all... Among whom we all. Isn't that kind of an interesting switch from third person to first person plural? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, is Paul a Gentile? No, Paul's a Jew. Isn't this kind of fascinating? See, uh, the typical view of a Jew regarding the ethnos of the nations is that you can break humanity down into two groups, which is what? The Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles, okay? The flesh circumcised people of God and the unflesh or uncircumcised flesh people that are not of God, okay? The enemies of God. But here's what's fascinating. Paul, now having received the gospel, now truly understanding God's plan of salvation here, he doesn't see the world according to these two groups anymore. He does not see flesh Jew, flesh Gentile. He now perceives the world totally different in light of the work of Christ. Paul sees humanity as fundamentally two groups stemming from one group. What is the one group looking at verse 3? Children of wrath. Children of wrath. Following the passions, the desires of the body, the passions of the flesh, you know, following the prince of the power of the air, humanity belongs to, by nature, one group. And that is a group of sinners that are under the wrath of God, enemies of God. Now, out of that group, then, because of what Christ has done, 
comes not to flesh people, but to spiritual people, right? Which are what? You used the word earlier, circumcision of the heart. So you have a group that by faith in Christ has circumcision of the heart, and you have a group that continues to rebel against him, okay? So now you have those who by faith are children of God, like Abraham, sharing the faith of Abraham. And you have those who, because of their rejection of Christ, remain essentially Gentiles. Is this, is this distinction making sense? Okay. So, um, let's read 2, 1 through 3 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the you here is predominantly Gentiles by flesh. And they are called sons of disobedience. Then verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So then verse 3, Paul includes himself as a Jew and all of mankind and goes so far as to call them children of wrath. So again, Paul sees all mankind, Jew and Gentile, under the wrath of God regardless of their patriarchal ancestry, their Jewish heritage, their Old Testament um, promises or law-keeping. Isn't that kind of amazing? And I mean, Hebrews teases this out by saying things like... um, you know, um, the bull, the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin. Romans talks about, um, uh, shoot, it just came out. It just escaped me. We'll get, we'll get to it in more detail in a second. So then this, I think, is further developed uh, when Paul kind of significantly diminishes the meaning of circumcision in verse 11. Okay? Uh, notice what he does here. He says at the end of verse 11... Um, Okay, let me just read the whole verse. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So Paul does not call circumcision of the flesh something divine. It It is merely human. It is merely a sign to be found in the flesh. It's accomplished by hands, not by the spirit. That distinction is of the utmost importance here. So this is further developed in Galatians uh, chapters 5 and 6. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 15, it says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So in other words, the external sign of Jewish identity now means nothing in light of this greater and more clear revelation of God's redemptive plan in the person of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Um, This is why Paul was constantly being chased around and harassed by Jews, because he's basically saying, guys, circumcision at this point is absolutely irrelevant. The circumcision of the flesh that you're practicing, 
totally meaningless at this point. And in fact, I think he would argue that it was always meaningless if you go back, right? This is part of Galatians chapter 3, that if you go back and you read Deuteronomy, it's very clear, like a circumcision of the heart is ultimately what you need. Um, so, yeah, you can see why Paul had some enemies who didn't like what he was doing to Judaism, potentially. Now, let me read this again. The external sign of Jewish identity now means nothing in light of the greater and more clear revelation of God's redemptive plan in the person of Jesus Christ. I think that's what we're beginning to see in verse 11. Now, you might read verse 12 and go, oh, Grady, hold on, you're trying to pull a fast one on us. Because look at verse 12. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So I've basically just made the argument that Israel's circumcision continuity is now irrelevant in light of Christ. But now Paul all of a sudden is going right back to Israel and saying, hey, look at these prom promises and look at these covenants. Okay. Um, now, I think what Paul is doing here is making the argument that Israel is still indeed special. Um, just because circumcision is no longer a sign of God's chosen people does not mean that God's chosen people in the nation of Israel uh, are therefore just simply irrelevant. Um, Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 3. And if you want to go there, you can. He's dealing with the question of, uh, you know, what benefit is there in being a Jew then? And actually, it's kind of a funny couple of verses because he says, much in every way. And then he gives like two ways. And then he just moves on. Um, which is kind of funny, but we're not going to go into that in detail. Um, but the fact of the matter is, why is Israel special? Anyone? They were given the ordinances of God. Okay, so they were given the ordinances of God, right? They were given the Old Testament command commandments. But um, I think we can make the argument now that in light of what Christ says, summarizing the law, love God and love others... Those are kind of no longer as significant as they once were. What is absolutely unique about the nation of Israel? They brought the Messiah, right? Like, what honor, what, what privilege to be the race through which God chooses to bring his beloved son into the world, okay? So I don't think that... I think that Paul actually had quite a reverence for uh, the Jewish folks as God's chosen people to bring the Messiah in the flesh. Okay? So they are the ethnic people through which God chose to accomplish his plan of salvation. But does that therefore mean that they are then saved? No. And I think that's part of the argument that Paul is making here. Okay? They are the blessed people of God because God chose them to be the seed of his kingdom. But they're not actual, they're not automatically in his kingdom by virtue of the fact that they are the seed. Um, so we already learned this back in chapter, well, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 
Entrance into the kingdom of God is what? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Don't you think, Gritty, that the reason they are specially set in the text itself is one uh, ordinated, and the reason is you are strangers uh, to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So I was thinking, like, Israel is special because they had the covenant of promise, of promise and they had hope uh, in God. Um, some of them did. Yeah. Not all of them. Yeah, so I would make the argument, what is the covenant of promise? Or what are the covenants of promise? Yeah. So uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it's verse 21, or maybe it's 2.21, he says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. So I would say that what Paul has in mind here is strangers to the covenants of promise. The Gentiles didn't know the particulars. They they didn't know about a Messiah. They didn't know about God's plan of redemption, you know, other than maybe uh, word spreading by ear. But they they weren't given these oracles of faith, right? So I would I would make the argument that what Paul means specifically by covenants of promise is ultimately Christ. Right? Again, Galatians three sixteen, Paul says that uh, the text says that through Abraham's seed. And he says, not plural, singular, right? Essentially saying Jesus is the promise made to Abraham about having a son. Um, So, no, go ahead. Another uh, thing about the circumcision was that Jerusalem Council seemed to be triggered by that whole thing. Do Jews, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? And uh, while, you know, the law was given to the Jews and, and it was the greatest law, it says in other books that, you know, man has ever seen, there are some things, but Peter says these were bondage that not even our fathers were able to bear under. So in some sense, the, the law was good and great. In some sense, since they were meaningless, ultimately, in the light of Christ, it was just extra bondage for them yeah. to be obedient for a certain time, to mark them out as a people, to bring in the Messiah. Yeah, that's good. And so, you know, some of them weren't. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I think uh, it, it does help for us. Like, if you read Romans clearly, like Romans, uh, particularly like 1 through 6, what, what you begin to see is that the law is praised for the purpose with which God intended it, which is what? Foreshadowing Christ. Foreshadowing Christ, but I would say specifically by showing to man that man cannot do what is expected of him in his own power. Right? So the law is good. Paul says the law is good. But it's good for showing that you can't live up to God's perfect expectations. And therefore you need a savior. I think even uh, he goes more precise in saying that it reveals the sin or something like that. Say it again. Uh, like more precisely the law reveals the sin of, of men. Like you, I can't remember the exact phrasing where you even say like... Yeah. You wouldn't know you sin if there was no law. Right. I think it's chapter 7 where he says, well, I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said don't covet. Right. It's either 6 or 7. It was a schoolmaster or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is that word? A um, There's a technical word for that, but I can't think of it right now. Okay. So... Um, This is really important. Entrance to the kingdom of God is, again, not by ethnicity, not by race, not 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 even by, you know, receiving these uh, these commandments, 
right? Uh, it is by grace through faith. Paul's already established that in verses 8 through 9. Now, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, again, if you were a Jew, like an ethnic Jew, that verse would enrage you. Because what you've just said is even a Gentile, even a Samaritan, even a Roman can be counted as a Jew, circumcised or not, based on something that is spiritual and not physical. Yes. So then it's kind of the, the whole debate about uh, is the church the new Israel? And so I, I would say that uh, those verses, they don't say that Gentiles are Jews. They say that the true Jew, the one who is really uh, in the covenant with God, is the one who was circumcised in the heart. So I would say that, you know, when it says, uh, here is a true Israelite, or the true the Jew who is true, uh, Jew indeed is the one, or when it says Jesus is the true vine, that doesn't say that the church or Christians or Gentiles or, or Jews, if they are circumcised in the hearts, it means that the ones who were really Jews, the true Israel of Romans 11, those are the ones who were actually following God. Um, yeah, and another way that you could say this is, like, what does it even mean to be a Jew in the mind of a Jew? You're a child of Abraham. Right. And what does the Bible say is a true child of Abraham? Not one who shares the genetics of Abraham, but one who shares the faith of Abraham, right? So, uh, I mean, I would take a position fairly close to what you're describing. I think mine is a little bit unique, but maybe not. But, I mean, I, I essentially hold that Jesus is Israel, right? Galatians 3.16 and, 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 you know, him being the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham about having a son. And therefore, Christ is Israel and all who are in Christ from Abraham all the way to Revelation, they are God's people. Um, so you sometimes have to make a distinction between like ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. I guess you could use those terms. Although there's a lot of murky water around that. And I don't intend to get into that if that's okay. Um, unless anybody has any questions or comments on that. But Okay, so again, I, I would affirm that Israel was special. And I think that Paul would argue that Israel was special. But they were special in the sense that through them came the Messiah. Um, but notice here that the emphasis in verse 12 is not on the commonwealth of Israel or the covenants of promise. What is the emphasis on at the first part of verse 12? Paul's not ultimately concerned that you would be separated from Israel or separated from the covenants of promise. From yeah, that you would be separated from Christ, right? Because if you're separated from Christ, then there is no faith, there is no salvation, there is no grace. Okay? So in the mind of Paul, true circumcision done in faith, not merely done in the flesh, uh, is um, it's in Christ. And that's what ultimately connects the faithful Jew to Christ and the Gentile, in spite of their genetics, to Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So true circumcision, circumcision of the heart, is what makes somebody a child of God and not a child of wrath. Okay, so therefore, then we can also say out of that, that circumcision done merely in the flesh by hands 
um, has no power. It is, it is utterly powerless. Just like all of your works of the flesh are powerless, right? To say I'm circumcised is no different than to say, you know, I, I didn't steal my neighbor's donkey. It doesn't cut it, right? Uh, no pun intended. Okay, sorry. Perhaps um, the only thing it does is like, I, I was fascinated by this because I just recently did a study on the circumcision yeah. men's group and uh, the, uh, Paul says that in almost uh, so many of his letters, the thing we're talking about, circumcision yeah. doesn't matter, and yet he circumcised Timothy or had him get circumcised so he could reach the Jews better. Yeah. And I just think that is in, uh, super interesting because they're hard for for that, you know, yeah. to, do, to do those things. So they seemed it as a, obviously nothing spiritual, but an opportunity to have a leg in, right, to bring more people into the kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings up like a whole nother discussion about kind of like contextualization that remains kind of a, a debate in, like, in reaching lost people, right? So I, the way that I like to illustrate this is like, if you were to go to like an island in the South Pacific on the equator, and you were to step onto the beach to reach people that had never heard of Jesus before, and you were to say to them, well, let me quote Isaiah to you. It says that your sins can be white as snow. Like, is there snow in the equator on a beach island, right? No. So could you say your sins could be white as seashells, right? Maybe that communicates the idea. Like, are we willing to make these efforts to bridge the gaps? And Paul seemed quite willing to do that uh, on, on numerous occasions. Um, it reminds me of when Paul said... Uh of course, by whatever means, preach the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, uh, Timothy obviously was quite committed to that as well, considering what he went through for the sake of the gospel there. So isn't that amazing? Like, Paul can really rail on, guys, there's no salvation by circumcision of the flesh. And yet, at the same time, basically be like, Timothy, let's do this if this is what will remove the barrier between us and the gospel, getting to these people. Um, okay, so... Uh, let me just reiterate that only Christ is where we find any hope of salvation. Only Christ is how we belong to the people of God. Let, let, I'm going to have you turn to Romans chapter 4, because a lot of this is teased out in Romans as well, and so it's, it's good for us to, to look at this. Um, Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. There it is. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And Paul will make the argument in Galatians, which came first? Circumcision or the promise? The promise. Okay. So verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, the reason I had you turn there is because when you just hear Paul and, and it's done fast, you're kind of like, your head is spinning. You can take some time and go back and sort that out. But essentially, Paul is saying that the promise came before circumcision because circumcision was only the sign and the promise is what mattered. And the promise came because Abraham trusted what God said. 
So faith is what unites. Okay. I would say then that verse 13 affirms all of this emphatically. Paul says, but now, sorry, I'm back in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Sorry. So Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by circumcision. No, by the blood of Christ, right? Okay, so Paul does not mention circumcision as the power that brings reconciliation. It's the blood of Christ, right? Okay, this phrase, uh, far off, is kind of interesting. Um, Verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, Uh, He actually uses it again down in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Who do you think those two groups are? Who, Who would be far off and who would be near in the sort of like redemptive historical context? outside who didn't receive the oracles who didn't hear any of the promises and the Jews were the one who heard all the promises heard the law heard all the prophets so yeah that's kind of what I think I, I would think that those who are far off would be like Gentiles right and those who are near would be Jews who have been exposed to this idea that God is uh, working for salvation um, but what's kind of interesting so this this uh, word here that we translate far off is the Greek word makron it shows up at the end of Peter's sermon in, uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, so Peter gives this discourse and he's predominantly speaking to Jews uh, that are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost. Uh, it'd be the Feast of Booths, right? Is that what feast it is? Whatever. The f- 50 days after the... Um, after the Day of Atonement. It's irrelevant. They're there for Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, I think by saying everyone who's far off, what Paul does is he says, you and your children and everyone who's far off, meaning everyone is included in this category of being far off from God. Yeah. This part, this part in, my, in, my, in the notes says a common, far off is a common term in rabbinical writings used to describe Gentiles, those who are apart from the true God. Yeah, and I, I would, um, I wouldn't necessarily like disagree with that. I guess I'm not super familiar with like rabbinical writings, but I think when you look at this context, what, what you have here is... Uh, So here's you, right, the immediate people, your children. But I think you have this, and all who are far off. Well, are these people not far off from God? 
they, they're actually closer in the sense that they have the Jewish background, but are they in, in God's plan of salvation? I mean, are they saved apart from what Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Does that make sense? What I'm arguing is that when Paul or when Peter uses this phrase, all who are far off, I think he's including all of humanity that is apart from Christ. It's hard to see it as not as the two separate groups that we already established with, with verse 18, though. For through him, we both, those two people, those who were near, those who were far off, both have access to the, it seems like we're still talking about Jews and Gentiles. Yes, and um, let me let me just say where I'm going with this because I, I, I do want to keep that distinction. I actually think it's really important and I'm going to get there in a minute, but what I'm getting at is that both in the mind of Paul and Peter here, there is only one source of reconciliation. It's not different, right? And, and this, is what, this is what they're driving towards, is that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, it's not circumcision, it's not law, it's not, you know, Jesus can say to the woman of Samaria, you, you worship at this mountain, but my people will worship in spirit and truth, that for everyone, it all has to be driven to the same place. It's by faith, Sorry, it's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Um, so what I'm getting at is, yes, I, I would still maintain this distinction. Like, there is this Jewishness here, but everyone is in this category of, uh, well, children of wrath. And that, that's why I began by kind of looking at verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, to begin with. Does that make sense? Okay. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I just didn't know where you were going with it. Like I didn't do. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, because I do want to maintain this distinction. Um, where I'm going with it is simply to say Christ Jesus is the only source of reconciliation. That's it. Um, so, again, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Now Ephesians 2, 11 through 14 is telling us that that salvation comes only through faith in Christ. It's not done by circumcision, law-keeping, works, anything that can be done in the flesh. Um, and this phrase, to be brought near, is this statement of reconciliation. So Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, then much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved from his life, or saved by his life. Okay. Uh, so, I've set that up. Now, hopefully, this will begin to answer your question. Like, what's the point? Where are you going with this gradient? Okay. So, we've established now that salvation and reconciliation come through Christ alone. That both Jew and Gentile have to receive salvation in the same way through the blood of Christ. It's no longer about circumcision or uncircumcision. Now, I think Paul is going to elaborate on what that reconciliation looks like in verses 14 through 18, okay? Um, so I want to mention a little side note here. And uh, so over the last, like, well, I mean, it's been brewing for a while, but certainly since um, probably like 2018, there's been a significant increase in like racial tension in our country. And if you um, pay attention to, if you paid attention to sermons through that, 
there was a lot of emphasis given to racial reconciliation, social justice, these kinds of things in the church. And um, on numerous occasions, I have heard pastors or people, Christians, go to these verses to argue that Paul is making a case for racial reconciliation here. And um, I don't think that that's what these verses are talking about at all. Now, I think, they're, I think the Bible has lots to say about like racial reconciliation and justice and things like that. But I think you can do it with verses like love your neighbor. Um, you know, I think you can do it with James that talks about show no partiality, right? This is not about racism or racial reconciliation. Um, and, and let me just emphasize again, the, the Bible has an inexpressibly high value for, for love and for reconciliation and for peace and for, you know, the healing of the nations, even if you will, that Revelation talks about. So Christians should seek to bring peace and healing wherever there's division between any people, you know, whether it's racial or whether it's, I mean, there could be a million reasons. Um, but again, this passage is not about racism and healing racial divides. Now, why? I mean, I guess I'm assuming you would agree with me. If anybody wants to disagree with me, you can do that, and we can talk that through. But why is this not about racism? Because there's two races. Those in Christ and those in Adam. That's it. <clears throat> right. So, because this is, this is a spiritual and religious matter. This is not a material or physical matter, right? The, the Bible says essentially that. There are two races, and it means it on a spiritual level. There are those who are in Christ, and there are those who are in Adam. That's it. So uh, there's no division beyond that as far as the way the Bible breaks people down. So thank you for saying it so succinctly like that, Rick. That's, that's exactly the argument that I'm getting. Um, this passage is about... Jews and Gentiles all being children of wrath until there is the revelation of grace by faith through Christ and reconciliation through the blood of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. So if somebody tries to come to you and say, look, yeah, Christians are supposed to be about racial reconciliation. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, you should encourage them to go back and deal with the passage according to the context, okay? Um, and then you can maybe give them some better ammunition to discuss the issues of justice and racial reconciliation. Any other thoughts on that? So some, sometimes, you know, the, the, the Bible says things and sometimes we try to use texts that don't say that to make an argument for it and we just need to find the actual texts that say that. Does that make sense? Maybe I shouldn't have gone down that road. Whatever. Okay. So, verses 14 through 18. Okay, let me read this again. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And maybe it's that phrase there in verse 16 that really kind of puts the nail in the coffin that we're not dealing with interpersonal relationships fundamentally. Like Paul will talk about this dividing wall of hostility, but ultimately that is just the, the effect or the, you know, the, the secondary issue that comes from not being reconciled with God. So Paul is concerned about man's reconciliation with God here. And that's where we would divide humanity into two categories, two races, if you will. Those who are reconciled to God and those who are not. So the emphasis is clearly on Jesus. He himself, verse 14, is our peace. So, you know, maybe to keep tying this back to cultural issues, um, there's a common phrase that will get chanted at these rallies. No justice. You heard this? No peace. No justice. People put this now on their bumper stickers too. No justice. No peace. And then the bumper sticker one usually has this. No justice. It's clever, isn't it? And no peace. Okay, biblically, what's the problem with this? Jesus. Um, justice needs to be replaced with Christ. Yeah, right? Like, if you have this idea in mind of, like, some kind of social harmony where everybody gets along and there's, you know, economic equality, um, that's not going to lead to peace because fundamentally man's problem is not, again, human interpersonal relationships. Fundamentally, man's problem is... Yeah. And... The real problem is we do not do justice, right? If we were really concerned with justice, condemnation would be on the table for all of us, right? So I just ruined uh, Trisha's thing. I'll have to fix that. But um, so how can people really have peace? What do you mean we, we don't do justice, though? You mean don't we don't do like the punic the vengeance or no what i what i mean is um you mean that you know, people fall short of doing justice and that's a, a problem with us you mean yes so so people at these rallies have some concept of justice but who is the party that has been most wrong it's not my neighbor it's god right and when we're talking about this when we talk about something like social justice, we leave out the most important person who has been victimized, which is God, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, and nobody cares about that. You know, they're marching at the Capitol with these phrases. They don't, they don't, they don't. There's no concern about how man has wronged God. Um, really what they mean is basically God has wronged us <laughs> and we're here to kick down the door and demand what we think is right from him. So, uh, ultimately, we can only have peace in our hearts by being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Now, all these other things are important, right? Like, interpersonal justice is important to God, but it is the byproduct of man being made right before the maker, the creator. Um, so, we can only have peace with one another by being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. 
so let me say it another way. There can be no real, meaningful, lasting, ultimate peace between people established outside of the blood of Christ. And through the blood of Christ, we should have as an expectation for the people of God that they would be able to live at peace with one another. Which is why the Bible can say, so long as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. So, I mean, this is something that is really, really close to my heart. Like, in our church, it is simply unacceptable that people would walk around with unreconciled differences. That we would harbor, and I've told this story before, but there was a man who came to our church at one point he doesn't come anymore um and he came up to me one sunday and he said gray i just have to tell you you know it's so hard for me to be at church when i sit behind this particular person because every time i see them i'm just angry Mm. like well then you need like you have murder in your heart and you need to go be reconciled to that person now this happened so long ago that i was still immature in my pastoral leadership and i didn't challenge him with that if that were to be said to me today, I would say, you need to go you need to go work that out. Like your salvation is potentially a danger if you can't love your brother. How can you love God whom you cannot see if you cannot love your brother whom you can see? So this is something that uh, that our church is deeply committed to. That we can actually be at peace with one another because of the peace that we have received through the blood of Christ. Okay. Now it is true that there is a uh, well, I guess I should ask, anybody have any thoughts or comments on any of that? I move on. I probably don't need to ask. You're probably just going to interrupt me, right? Which is what you should do. So now it is true that there's a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. So although this is not a, a predominantly uh, a passage that's predominantly concerned with like racial reconciliation, Paul does say that there is a wall of hostility. Verse 14. And I do think ultimately he has in mind the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile um, that God is going to deal with by bringing everybody into fellowship, verse 18, through one spirit in the Father. Um, But ultimately, this is a religious issue. It's a a spiritual or heart issue. Um, So the Jews were convinced that they alone had access to God. And the reason is because Uh, They were given the commandments. They were the, I guess you could say, the host people for the temple where the Spirit of God dwelt. Now, even in the Old Testament, we see God's intention. You know, when Solomon dedicates the temple, is that God's house would be a house of prayer for all nations. So it wasn't meant to be exclusive. Um, But the Jews became prideful that they alone had Yahweh as their God to the exclusion of all the other nations. Um, And that created hostility. But now, in Christ, by, you know, in his flesh, by his blood, this wall of division is broken down. And, And again, we're seeing that there's no real distinction between Jew and Gentile in the flesh uh, because all are children of wrath. It was, it was their pride that we were, were warned about as Gentiles to remember them that they were cut off so easily. <clears throat> to, don't, don't, don't be like that. Yeah. Thinking. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's in Romans as well, right? Is that chapter 11 where that says? Somewhere in, there, in 9 and 11. Um, and Paul even says, actually, that 
part of his going to the Gentiles is to hopefully prod that pride so much <laughs> that the Jews become jealous of what's now going to the Gentiles that they would repent and come to faith in Christ. That's kind of fascinating. So when it comes to the externals, what we find is that even though, even though there was this uh, physical sign distinguishing between Jew and Gentile, in reality, they were all still in one camp because they were all children of wrath as long as there was no faith behind their belief system. No sincere Abrahamic trust in God. And one, one olive tree, like one. Yes, yeah. one. That's good. One, two trees. Um, so then verse 16, we find that the hostility is killed, right? And what is the, what is the instrument by which the hostility between Jew and Gentile is killed? The cross. Now, why would the cross destroy hostility between you and someone else? What, what do you think? That's exactly right. Because at the foot of the cross, nobody is looking to their accolades, right? Nobody is bringing their resume to say, I'm here because of you know, my, my lineage, my activity, my, my righteousness, my law-keeping. At the foot of the cross, what do we all say? I'm here by grace, right? I'm here because of what he has done, not what I have done. And so absolutely, it levels the playing field. Yeah. Well, it goes on in Philippians to, to go off his pedigree and how amazing he was at, against in the law blameless. And he said, I consider all those things done. So any accolades we have, we should consider nothing. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I consider it all rubbish. So the hostility of religious pride and self-righteousness is demolished. Killed, as Paul says. As we all understand ourselves rightly to be children of wrath, saved by grace, through the wonderful work of Jesus Christ. So all those who are reconciled are reconciled only through Christ. Yeah. Um, can I share the verse? Yeah, please. Right, so it's Colossians 3.11. Colossians 3.11. It's um, talking about the wrath of God and those who disobey and the Christians who once walked like that but then um, have a longer uh, life um, represented by those actions. And then verse 11, it says, Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. So this passage is a parallel passage to Galatians 3.28, and Christ is neither male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Yeah. Uh, so basically, in Christ, it's not about your gender, it's not about if you are Jew or Greek, it's not about whether or not you're circumcised or uncircumcised, and then barbarian or Scythian, this is about the ethnic groups, right. and then slave or free, it's about the economic status. So, regardless of where we come from, we are all one in Christ, and um, so the couple things I want to share about that is that I think it's very unhelpful to talk about racism or different races because that's all a lie from the devil. We shouldn't be uh, speaking in the same breath about, um, in, my, in my opinion, about spiritual races and physical races. 
Because in the physical realm, there's only one race, the right. human race. We're all from one blood, and uh, we are all brown. Like the, you know, I mean, think of the nonsense. I'm not white, that's white. Right. And uh, they are not black, they are brown. Now, how ridiculous that people say they have black churches. Right. Mm. So we have a sit-in church, a right. slave church. Right. We have the, the free church. We have the circumcised. This is ridiculous. So, you know, we should just talk all together to talk about races because there is no such thing. It's, yeah. just, it's just continuously feeding a false idea. I mean, your skin color has nothing to do about your culture, about right. who you are, what you think. All of that is just... It's just a, a scheme of the devil to divide people. Yeah. Especially today, like most people today, they just find reasons to hate each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and but again, in that verse, um, it does say that the ethnic uh, uh, differences they disappear in Jesus. Yeah. So I think it aligns quite well with what you were yeah. saying. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And uh, we'll, we'll close by just a brief reflection on verse 18. It says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Right? So what is the connective tissue that holds the body of Christ together? It's the spirit. Right? And, and look, if, if, we, if we think about the kinds of things that, that repel us from one another, that are tempting to repel us to one, from one another, you know, pushing us away, like magnets that are opposite or, or you know same sides there's all kinds of things right maybe it's skin color maybe it's socioeconomic status maybe it's your your um income level your education all those kinds of different things but the fact of the matter is this bond that is the spirit of god that is what holds us together and it is infinitely stronger than whatever petty differences might divide us and uh, I mean, a church that really understands this is powerful because like you said, we've got an enemy who seeks to divide us and we've got a culture that wants to, there's a million reasons for us to part ways and go our separate ways. And, and I, I continue to love the picture that C.S. Lewis gives of hell uh, in the, the great divorce where everybody's just off on their own living alone because you can't get along with anybody because there's a million reasons to be divided. But it's the spirit of God, Paul says, through him, we both, or we could say we all, have access in one spirit to the Father. Um, and so that's why we should be committed to overcoming our differences because it's the spirit that keeps us together. There's so much more we can say about this, but we have to finish up, so let me just pray. God, I ask that, um, that you would keep our hearts knit together through the spirit and that we would be committed to this idea that the playing field has been leveled. Jew, Gentile, righteous, unrighteous, good, bad, wealthy, poor, smart, dumb, beautiful, ugly, whatever. We are all, the playing field is leveled because we all come to the foot of the cross to receive the grace that we need so that we can move from being children of wrath to being children of God. And I pray that we would live in that humility and that... Um, we would just seek the face of Christ as brothers and sisters. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Amen.